0: a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: This is the Intelligence
0: Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by
1: Raytheon. Technology underpins society today in a way that it never has before. And if you look at technology as a national strategy, which, frankly, other countries, some of them do, it will lead you to a different national security answer than if you look at it as simply a tactic or a capability. I don't need to be a wealthy nation anymore to have an intelligence capability to shape or impact another nation to even have some level of kinetic impact with cyber and things like that. So there's a democratisation basically
0: the of, leveling of the playing absolutely, field. Absolutely,
1: there's a leveling of the playing field.
0: Chris, the competition with
1: China over technology,
0: how do you think about that?
1: I think the Chinese look at technology literally from the ground up. They look at real estate, then they look at infrastructure, whether it be utilities, they look at communications, they look at hosting services, applications, and I think that they look at it at a global level. And so I think the Chinese have a very, very well thought out and sophisticated strategy. I heard a quote from a scientist who said that the Europeans won the industrial revolution, the Americans won the IT revolutions, and the Chinese want to make sure they win the bio revolution. If you think about what we can do with synthetic bio these days, when you think about its ability to cure disease, to deliver food, bio is the essence of life. And it's also probably on the the reverse side, the greatest threat. I think that that if you look at what's happened in the United States over the last 50 years, has just been this blossoming of imagination. That this country was built on imagining something better, something new, something different. It will be interesting to see whether the Chinese economy is that imaginable and, and this is
0: where this is our main strength from your
1: perspective i believe it is i i think our educational system is still exceptional and and really what i'm what i'm saying is that over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years i think it will be this notion of creativity and imagination that differentiates us
0: chris darby is the president and ceo of inqtel an independent venture capital fund that identifies innovative technologies to support the missions of the CIA, the intelligence community, and even the larger national security community. Prior to joining Incutel, Chris was a vice president at Intel Corporation. In the wake of 9 11, Chris applied his technical expertise and experience with the venture capital firms to serve as an advisor to the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. I recently had a chance to sit down with Chris. To discuss the role of technology in the intelligence community as InQutel celebrates its 20th anniversary. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there, advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Chris, welcome. It is great to have you on the show.
1: Mike, it's an honor to be here. Thank you.
0: Chris, no doubt the, the, the place to start here is explaining to folks what InQtel is, why it was formed, what it does.
1: So, InQtel is the, the strategic investment arm of, of the CIA and the broader intelligence and, and national security community. And we were formed in nineteen ninety-nine largely as a vehicle to access innovation where that innovation may reside. I think there was a recognition on the part of George Tennant and others that uh, CIA just wasn't seeing these emerging companies that were, were being formed in Silicon Valley, Boston, and elsewhere. And, and in the simplest terms, Incutel was set up as, as an investment vehicle to get to those those companies.
0: You know, I was on his staff at the time, I was his executive assistant and Part of it was a realization that the way we used to do things, which was develop our technology internally ourselves, was simply not possible anymore because the the world of technology outside of CIA was moving so much faster and in so many different directions than we were able to do internally. So, Chris, this is InkyTel's twentieth anniversary. So congratulations. Thank you. Can you give us a sense of what Inciteling has accomplished over the last two decades?
1: Sure. I, I think the first thing that InkyTel accomplished is that it established a process for communicating the requirements of our customers to this community that just isn't familiar with the business of intelligence or national security. It's, a, it's about a conversation with these companies and trying to translate what are often really unique requirements into something that the commercial sector can embrace and can act on and and so it's 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 not that inkytel is is the innovator what we're doing is we're trying to imagine something new and then communicate that to these companies who have the innovative technologies and products so it's 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 really about process more than anything else and if I if i look back over the 20 years we've gone through all the different phases of a startup i think that that we found our way with some early investments in companies that became very successful companies like palantir and fireeye who who had a meaningful impact on mission and i think uh we've taken it to a whole new level lately i'm told we're one of the more prolific investors in the world so we we make an investment a week in one of these new companies and what we're what we're really doing is paying them to adapt their technology to the unique environment that our customers have.
0: What do you need to see in a company in order to make an investment in it?
1: Well, it, it might surprise a lot of people to know that the first thing we look at is the team. Who are the individuals leading this team? Are, the, are they credible? Do they have domain expertise? Do we have reason to believe that they can deliver and, and be successful? Then we look at technology and we say, is that technology the technology we need to meet a particular requirement that is associated with delivering a capability? Finally, we look at the financing and just the the general health, economic health of the company.
0: Chris, how have your customers, which is the intelligence community and even the broader national security community now, how have they changed over the last 20 years and how have you changed as a result of that?
1: Well, I think there's been, Michael, as you well know, there's been a, a major shift recently. We've been at war for my entire tenure here at, at InQTEL. And I think that as we've drawn down and gotten back to more traditional intelligence and national security threats and missions, uh, I, I think the requirements change. And so we're not simply focused on, on counterterrorism and CT and the, the sorts of things that we were focused on. And now it's, it's, it's more the classical capabilities, but classical um, capabilities in a whole new uh, technology environment. Things, there was no iPhone when I took this job 13 years ago. Um, There was no CRISPR tool. The the tech has moved so quickly and, and is in fact accelerating. The other thing is that if you think about technology, the intersection set between what the private sector is doing and the requirements of the intelligence community or defense community has never been greater. Uh, we, we look at things like identity intelligence. Uh, in the commercial space, they may call that ad tech. What, is, what are the characteristics of a consumer and at what fidelity can I get to those characteristics? Well, obviously, that's of interest to, to the intelligence community.
0: So, Chris, your, your job at the end of the day is to deliver capability to the national security community in a way that enhances their mission. What are the things that make that easy for you to do and what are the things that make that hard for you to do?
1: Well I I think that the thing that makes it the most fun for us to do, I'm not sure I would use the word easy, but is this notion of of, uh, leveraging our creativity and imagination looking at the way our customer does something today and imagining a different way to do it based on our view of, of what the commercial space looks like. And once we imagine it, we, we take a very architectural approach. We, we say, what are all the different elements that you would need to bring together to deliver this new capability? I think the thing that can make it challenging sometimes is that our customers tend to think in, in terms of very, very specific requirements. And I think that that if you get too specific and you try and mitigate the risk of of a technology too heavily, you actually will uh, contract the creativity out of the process right. and and so that can be challenging for us sometimes.
0: right, right. Chris, where does the name come from?
1: So uh, let me preface this by saying I wasn't there at the time. And I've, I've, I've found, Michael, in, in my tenure that there are approximately 2,000 people that were responsible for naming and founding InQtel. But I've heard that it actually started as InQIt, In Intelligence, Q for the, the MI6Q, and IT for IT. Evidently, there was a trademark dispute or something along those lines, and they just pivoted to InQtel.
0: So Chris, you sit in a very interesting place, I think. You sit at the intersection of technology and national security. And I'd love to get your perspective on how those two things impact each other. And how they how that today might be different from what it was, you know, twenty five years ago during the Cold War, and how that may be different five to ten years from now than it is today.
1: Wow, Michael, that's that's a good one. Technology underpins society today in a way that it, it never has before. If if you think about the interaction that we have every day with technology, with smart homes and mobile devices, uh, autonomous vehicles, tech is just embedded into life in a way that it, it wasn't when, when you and I were growing up. And I think that if you look at technology as a stra- as a national strategy, which, frankly, other countries, some of them do, it will lead you to a different national security answer than if you look at it as simply a tactic or a capability. Identity intelligence today is far more meaningful, I think, than it has ever been before. And, and if I layer things like AI, artificial intelligence on top of that, it's it's going to be very interesting to understand um, what we can learn about people, what we can learn about intentions, and then how do you shape those things. This whole notion of of shaping opinion and so on has taken on a a, a whole new gravity, I think, for us as a nation and probably for the world.
0: It seems for the IC, right, that these technologies uh, do several things. One is they, they enable our adversaries, right? They give them capabilities they didn't have before. They create challenges for how the intelligence community operates and how they do their job, and therefore you need to adjust to that. And then they create huge opportunities for the intelligence community to use those capabilities and what it does every day, right? And so it's a kind of complex jigsaw puzzle there to, to figure all that out if you're, if you're sitting, you know, in your seat or the DNI seat or the director of CIA seat?
1: Yeah, in my seat, basically what I'm seeing is a diminishing marginal value of capital expenditure. What does that mean? What what that means is anybody can put a satellite constellation up. Mm. Uh, High schools are putting satellites up. Um, So I can create uh, situational awareness. I can get imagery. I can do tagging, tracking, and locating and things like that with commercial platforms um, that clearly don't have all of the capabilities that the exquisite systems might, but I don't need to be a wealthy nation anymore to, to have an intelligence capability to shape or impact another, uh, another nation to even have some level of, of kinetic impact with cyber and, and things like that. So there's, there's a democratization basically.
0: There's a leveling of, of the playing
1: absolutely, field. Absolutely. There's yeah. a there's a leveling of the playing field.
0: Yeah. Chris, I want to pick up on that economic aspect of this. As you know, economics has always been important to national security in a very large sense, in a Paul Kennedy, you know, great power sense and in a very specific sense, like terrorist finance or illicit finance. But it really seems, you know, it really seems to me that that economics and national security, largely because of technology, are becoming intertwined in a way that's never happened before in a very deep way. I just want to get your reaction to that.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any question that they're intertwined these days. I think if, if you look at everything from projection of power to uh, pre-deployment of capability – It's it's about technology. It's about your nation's technology and the way it is is deployed around the world. And we're seeing adversaries leverage that, I think, quite successfully. I don't think you can rely on simply bespoke build-it-deploy-it methodology anymore. I I think you've got to look at it as a very long-term strategy. And I think that you've got to understand that the, the intersection set between the private sector and its capabilities and government's requirements is growing. It, it, it's absolutely growing.
0: What's, what's your sense, you know, Snowden, the Snowden disclosures and did some damage to the relationship between Silicon Valley and the government.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your sense for where that is today?
1: So at the end of the day, I believe Silicon Valley and all the other uh, places where startup innovation and venture capital happens in this country are patriotic. They, they understand the good things that this country has done for them. Most of these companies couldn't be built anywhere else in the world. Right. And, and even if you look at the foundational platform that they're building upon, the Internet, well, that came from the USG. And so I think at the end of the day, these companies recognize that. Now, they have shareholders that they're, they're beholding to. But I think one of the things that, that sometimes is lacking is a communication. You've got to speak the language. I think one of the unique things about Incutel is that we operate at the intersection set of three very different worlds. We operate at the intersection set of government, the startup community, and the venture capital community. And we act as a translator in that intersection set. And I think that to the extent that the government can enter into a conversation with the private sector and be more transparent about what its concerns are and, and what its objectives are, our experience is that the private sector is very open to assisting.
0: And just so people, um, just so people know, when you say venture capital community, you mean those companies who invest capital in these companies to to get them growing and to keep them growing and to 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 get them to where
1: they want to be. Absolutely, the um, their the venture capital uh, you can think of them as the fuel behind all yeah. of these companies.
0: I know when you when you first started out that you were primarily focused on U.S. technology. Is that broader now? Are you looking, are you looking outside the United States as well?
1: We are, we, and we have for, for a number of years. Uh, I would say probably 10% of our investments are outside of the United States, and, and uh, we did just open offices in London and Sydney as well. Uh, not all innovation happens within the borders of the United States, and I think it's, it's incumbent on the intelligence and defense communities to, to make sure they have the best. Capability that they can possibly get, and sometimes that's outside the U.S.
0: Does that do, there's some special challenges that come with that when you knock on somebody's door and say, "Hi, I'm from Yankutel, and I work for the CIA." And
1: we don't usually lead with that, <laughs> Michael. We, <laughs> we we certainly we certainly uh, we don't hide the fact that we we support the U.S. and in intelligence and national security community. But again, we start with a conversation. We start with learning about what they do, and and I don't care where you are. I don't care whether you're in in Tel Aviv, Oslo, Moscow, if you've got a company that you're proud of, you want to talk about that and you want, to, you want to discuss what it is that you have to the extent that we help these companies adapt their technology so that they can access a market. And, and if it's an international company, perhaps they want to access our market, but they may also want to sell to the UK or sell to the Australians as well. So uh, I think we facilitate uh, market access for them.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Darby. Do you hear that? That's an enemy drone being led out of U.S. airspace with a line of code. It's just one of the ways Raytheon cyber experts are helping customers stay ahead of cyber threats. Every day we pave the way to mission success, training warfighters to succeed in the cyber domain modernizing platforms through software innovation, protecting every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Chris, the competition with China
1: over technology,
0: how do you think about that?
1: I think about that a lot, Michael, as you can probably imagine. The the Chinese have a very, in my mind, sophisticated strategy when it comes to technology, and, and they pretty much have to. If you think about their population base and what they have to support over a long period of time, they need to take a long-term view of technology. I think the big thing is that they don't differentiate their national security policy from their national economic strategies. I think they, they view it as one and the same. Whereas we keep those, those buckets of money and those policies very separate, I think the Chinese view them as being intertwined. And even, even the legal basis for that interconnection is there. If I'm a company in China, I am legally obligated to cooperate with the government. And one can say yes, and the government is very supportive of those companies uh, as a result of the fact that they're, they're legally operated to, to cooperate. I think the Chinese have a layered approach. I think the Chinese look at technology literally from the ground up they look at real estate then they look at infrastructure whether it be utilities they look at communications they look at hosting services applications and i think that they look at it at a global level mm. and if you look at it from an intelligence perspective because i your shows intelligence matters you probably don't have to worry about accessing an environment if you own that environment. And and so I think the Chinese have a very, very uh, well thought out and sophisticated strategy.
0: I spent a little bit of time looking at China's strategy with regard to getting the energy that it needs and the resources that it needs. And the Western view of energy security is simply to maximize it. It doesn't matter who owns it. China's view was always we have to own it from being in the ground all the way to the consumer back in China we want to own that whole supply chain right that's security to us and it sounds like it sounds a bit similar on the technology
1: side what absolutely is I, I think that they they understand that control is important and if they abdicate control uh, they may not be able to achieve their 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 long-term goals if I look at what they're doing with AI and bio for example, they're playing a, a really sophisticated, long game. I, I think that when we look at their AI initiatives, we think about it from a national intelligence or defense perspective. I immediately go to bio. If you look at, at Beijing Genomics Institute and places like that, they've got these huge genomic data sets. And if I'm China and I'm worried about my health care over a long period of time, that makes sense. I'm going to apply AI to those genomic data set sets to to decrease my, my cost obligations over a long period of time for my population. So it's it does make sense.
0: So in this competition for these high-tech industries, what are the most important?
1: Mm. I would actually say bio is the most important right now. And I know that, that that's probably not a popular... You don't
0: hear that. You don't hear that.
1: It's a not a popular answer in Washington. The. I heard a quote from a scientist, in fact, I think it was a Chinese scientist, who said that the Europeans won the Industrial Revolution, the Americans won the IT revolutions, and the Chinese want to make sure they win the bio revolution. And if you think about what we can do with synthetic bio these days, uh, when you think about its ability to cure disease, to to uh, deliver food, bio is the essence of life. and uh, it's also probably on the the reverse side the greatest threat, right? Be, because there are two sides to to the bio opportunity, and uh, so it would be my number one, closely followed with a with probably a more conventional answer, which would be the AI answer, uh, the the notion of increasingly intelligent processing and uh, predictive analytics. Is there a
0: difference and, between AI and machine learning?
1: Uh, machine learning is probably a subset of the the broad AI category. Uh, it, there isn't a huge difference, no. It's, uh, people are bending the uh, the, the words in a number of different ways.
0: Chris, in this competition between the United States and China, um, which I think is going to define a good bit of the future here and define in many ways what the future looks like, what do you think China's strengths and weaknesses are and what are our strengths and
1: weaknesses? So I think China's strengths lie in the mass of data. You've, you've probably, Michael, heard the phrase data is the new oil. Mm-hmm. And China is just awash with data. And they don't have the same restraints that we do around collecting it and using it it's because of the privacy um, differences uh, between our countries. and so. China is going to have this corpus of labeled data that they can leverage. In fact, if you look at the most valuable AI firm in the world today, I believe it's probably SenseTime, a Chinese a Chinese firm, an AI firm that really trained its its algorithms and trained its its deliverables on a massive set of facial recognition images that they gathered from the cameras that were distributed well, they took that, and they're, they're leveraging it into all sorts of different opportunities.
0: So the more data have, you have, the better you are at developing those algorithms.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, an algorithm without data is, is useless, and, and, and it's not just data. It's labeled data. What does that mean? What that means is um, if I've got a, a picture of a cow, I've got to know it's a cow. Somebody's got to say, that's a cow and not a pig. And what the Chinese are doing is they are labeling data at a level that is that is just orders of magnitude more than anyone else in the world uh, and I would be too if I were the Chinese by the way this is uh, they're doing it on the on the bio side they're doing it in imagery they're doing it all, all over and I think that uh that's going to be a big advantage for them uh, that that will be a strength this this notion that they have the, the largest labeled data set in the world is going to be a huge strength
0: for them. What about the subsidies they provide their companies?
1: Well, they, they the
0: theft of intellectual property. They provide their companies. Is that, is, is that an advantage at the end of the day or
1: it's an advantage to a point. So it, it, it certainly allows them to catch up fast, but once you've caught up, you've got to keep going. And, and so the thing that will determine, I think, how successful they are over a long period of time, some of these companies, will will be their ability to imagine what comes next. I think that, that if you look at what's happened in the United States over the last 50 years has just been this this blossoming of imagination. That This country was built on imagining something better, something new, something different. And if you look at all of these companies that have... have built themselves up and been successful in the U.S., it's been based on this imagination. It will be interesting to see whether the Chinese economy is that imaginative And, and
0: this is where this is our main strength from your
1: perspective. It, it, I believe it is. I, I think our educational system is still exceptional. And and really what I'm what, what I'm saying is that over the next twenty or thirty or forty years, I think it will be this notion of creativity and imagination that differentiates us for the next little while I think we we were we've got a great educational system we've got good infrastructure we've a great post secondary educational system I think we probably have some things
0: we, we got we, some things uh, to do got, at the lower some, levels. Yeah, I was going to yes. say at the lower yes. levels
1: we probably need yes. need to work a little harder but but our, our second post secondary education is is superb.
0: Chris so you know one of the key questions here is what's the right role for the US government in this competition between China and the United States,
1: I know that's a really tough question. So it's above my pay grade to answer the question, Michael. But I will let me answer it from the perspective of someone who operates at the intersection set of venture capital, startups, and and government. I think there are seams that the government needs to fill in the investment ecosystem. What I what I mean by that is. There are places that that the venture capital community don't invest for good reasons. Venture capital is a pattern recognition business. I, I, I have a tried and true model for how I create value for, for my stakeholders. Uh, the university systems are a little bit too early for our VCs. They don't generally put huge amounts of money into university startups. The Chinese, uh, the high-end capital firm, um, just... Dedicated a billion dollars to the universities, which which I think is probably a smart move on their part. I think that that we need to pour money more money into that as a nation, and we need to understand uh, where that technology goes after we pour pour the money in. I think that there are certain areas that we need to own and control a little bit more closely than we do today, and I think that the government may have a role to play in. In doing that. And ultimately, I
0: think. When you that, say own and control, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, if you look at microelectronics um, mm-hmm. and, and the role that microelectronics plays in intelligence and national security, I, I think there's a risk that we we cede the microelectronics industry to, to others if we're not careful. In it. And so I think we have to invest.
0: And that becomes a national security vulnerability.
1: Absolutely. And, and uh, the data labeling that we mentioned earlier, I, I don't think we can afford to be that far behind. In data labeling.
0: So you put all this together, their strengths, our strengths, whether or not the government goes down this road you're talking about, which certainly makes sense to me. How do you see this playing out over the next 10, 20 years? And I know again this is a hard question. What's your best guess?
1: My best guess and hope actually is that we establish a mutually uncomfortable understanding with one another and place in this world where um, we can operate in, in business. We call it coopetition. We understand that there are certain areas where it's in the interest of mankind if we cooperate. It just makes good sense. But we have our own interests. We have our own ideologies and so on, and we will compete in, in certain cases based on those. From a tech standpoint, tech has a way of leveling everything over a period of time. If you look at the way smartphones proliferated around the world, you can't go to a country in the world where there isn't a smartphone. And I think that, that the notion that tech is going to be hugely differentiated between our countries over a long period of time, I don't see it. I don't see it, so I think it's going to be up to the policymakers to 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 find that fine line that allows for the competition globally.
0: Are you one of these people, Chris, who thinks there may end up being two different internets, or or not?
1: I think that's really hard. I think there will be layers and uh, there will be uh, forks in the internet. I think that, uh, but I, I think the foundation of TCPIP... And, and what we call the Internet is here to stay. I, I, I think we'll iterate above it, and we will probably create uh, some versions that, that are a little bit off, but I think the foundation is not going to go away.
0: Chris, you've been terrific uh, with sharing your time with us. Just a couple of more questions. People always ask me, uh, no matter where I go, Michael, what keeps you up at night? What really worries you? I want to turn that question around and ask you that question.
1: The thing that worries me most, Michael, is will we allow ourselves to have a failure of imagination? Will we allow ourselves to become complacent in the fact that we do have great technology? We do have great companies that we build in this country. But um, I had the good fortune of working at Intel um, for a while, and I was in meetings with Andy Grove, uh, who, of course, only the paranoid survive. My paranoia really revolves around us losing that creativity and getting too comfortable, and and, and losing our imagination about what could it look like, what could be done differently. That keeps me up at night what, a lot.
0: What puts that at risk?
1: I think that that as a nation, we're distracted. There, there's a lot of distractions going on right now. And people are worrying about so many different things that they're they're not taking the time mm. on a day-to-day basis to think what, what I would characterize as good thoughts. Mm. Get into the shower and think, whoa, I wonder if I could build X. Mm. I wonder if I could do this. I think we're all, we're all distracted. We're
0: all watching TV. We're, we're all watching hearing from yeah, Capitol we're, Hill. We're distracted
1: right now. And I, and I think that could ultimately be our Achilles heel. Interesting,
0: Chris. What do you look for in the folks you hire at tell
1: Yeah, I, I'm asked this a lot. I look for three things. The first thing I look for is integrity, because if you if you think about and when I say integrity, I'm talking about if you say you're going to do something, will you do it? Are you are are you loyal to a higher cause? all, all of the different different things that are, I think, really important if you're going to serve the mission that we serve, because we're a 501c3 not-for-profit. We are not a traditional venture capital firm by any stretch. You come here because you're interested in serving the mission. So I look for integrity first. The next thing I look for is that creativity. Do you think about problems differently? Do you look at something and go, hmm, I could do that with, with this particular thing? And the last thing I look for and is is a sense of humor, mm. and I don't mean telling jokes. I just mean the ability to maintain perspective when everything's uh, burning down around you. You, you. You've because we're in a hard business. Our our customers are in a hard business, and it's a very stressful time. I think that the best companies are the one that the ones that have this sense of humor, and are are, are able to take a step back and enjoy themselves. You
0: know, the way I put it, and I know exactly what you're talking about, the way I put it is that you don't take yourself too seriously. You're in these extraordinarily important meetings, and you're not taking yourself too seriously. That's really important.
1: That's what I look for.
0: Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Michael, it was my pleasure. A real honor. Thank you very much. Welcome.
0: That was Chris Darby. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode